All right, if you're new to New Life, uh, we are in a message series called Transformed. We're really just kind of unpacking what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, if that seems uh, super simple or super elementary to you, uh, that's because it is. But the reality is there's been a whole heck of a lot of confusion and even misinformation uh, in the American church, especially the last 30 or 40 years, about what it actually means to become a Christian, what, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I heard a, a pastor named Jim Putman about a year or two ago, um, and he said the, the primary problem, like the, the number one problem from which all of the other problems in the American church flow, um, the number one problem is that we believe in the American church, we're arrogant enough to believe that we can divorce the teachings of Jesus from the methods of Jesus, and we expect the same results that Jesus got. In other words, we as an American church, we're, we're kind of in love with studying what Jesus said. We, we, we love his teachings for the most part, but we don't want to actually do what he did. And then we wonder why our spiritual lives are dry and why many of our churches are dead and dying. And we, we have to reconnect the teachings of Jesus with the methods of Jesus if we want the results of Jesus. And to do that, man, we, it starts with us knowing what a disciple of Jesus is. Now, the great news about all of this is that it really isn't all that complicated. Where we've muddied the waters or we've tended to muddy the waters as the American church, Jesus actually brings a great deal of clarity. And so our anchor text for this whole series is found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. And in this scene that we've been looking at, Matthew 4, Jesus is starting his earthly ministry. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he comes across uh, two guys, Peter and Andrew, and he extends his very first invitation to be his disciples. Now, Peter and Andrew were, were fishermen. The, these guys were unrebar- unremarkable men in almost every way, just regular people like you and me. And from that very first invitation to be his disciple, we, we can derive a really simple and clear definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So here it is, Matthew 4, 19. Jesus see the, sees these two unsuspecting guys. They're just going about their business. They're fishing. They're doing their jobs. And this is what he says, says to them. This will be on the screens for you. Matthew 4, 19. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. So we see very clearly that a disciple of Jesus is someone that follows him, someone who's in the process of being changed by him, and someone who is living on mission with him. So it's really simple. Follow, change, on mission. At New Life, we call this the disciple triangle. That should be on the screen for you right now. And we're just going to keep kind of hammering this definition home throughout this series because I want this emblazoned in your mind. I don't want you to ever be confused ever again about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So if anybody ever asks you for the rest of your life, man, I notice that you're different. You're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean that you're religious or you're part of some weird cult? Now, this is, this is what it actually means. You can just draw that little triangle for me. Simply means that I follow Jesus with my life, that I'm in the, pro- I'm not perfect, but I'm in this, this process of transformation whereby he is changing me and I'm also doing my very best to live on mission with him. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. 
So last week we looked at the first element or the first component of being a disciple, and that is follow. Someone who's a disciple follows Jesus. And as we said last week, uh, that doesn't mean being a religious person. That doesn't even mean being a good person. And it's certainly not praying some magical prayer that never actually changes your life. We said following Jesus is actually learning how to reorient your life around Christ and his mission. It's a relationship, and it's learning how to plug into him as your power source to live this kind of life. So here, here's the deal. When we, when we follow Jesus, when we begin to give our lives to him in that moment, the Bible calls this salvation, right? You've all probably heard that word. Uh, this is the moment in time when God reaches down and he plucks us out of the kingdom of darkness and he places us into his kingdom of light and he calls us his sons and daughters. And in that moment, we are justified Meaning that in that very moment when we decide to give our lives to Jesus and follow him, we become positionally innocent. We become positionally righteous. Now, that doesn't mean that we actually are innocent. Clearly, none of us are. That doesn't mean that we actually are righteous. It just means that our sins, because of what Jesus has done through his perfect life, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, that we exchange our sins for his righteousness. And so practically what that means for me one day when I stand before God the Father and I, I'm standing before him, what he's going to see is he's not going to see all of my junk. And he's, he's not going to see all of my sin, but because I've chosen to, to follow Jesus, when he looks at me, he's going to see the righteousness of Jesus instead of my sin. We call that the great exchange. And all of that happens in an instant when we begin to follow Jesus by placing our faith in him and giving our lives to him. And as incredible as that truth is, God still wants more for us. That's amazing, isn't it? Like that, if, if that were all he had ever done for us, that would be far more than we, any of us ever deserve. But he, he actually wants more for us than just that instantaneous moment of salvation or justification. He wants, he wants to actually transform our lives in the here and now. And that leads us to another idea that we find all over the pages of Scripture, and that's the idea of this process that the disciples and the early Christians called sanctification. Now, that's a kind of a big Bible word, a big theological word, but sanctification is simply the process of us becoming more and more like Jesus. The word sanctification, sanctify, actually means to set apart or to make holy. Now, this is, this is different than our salvation experience. It's different than just justification in two ways because sanctification is not... It's not instantaneous like salvation is, right? It's, it's a process from the moment that we begin to follow Jesus to the moment that we leave this planet and meet him face to face. It is a lifelong process. And then secondly, sanctification, unlike our salvation experience, and our salvation experience is completely a work of God. Our justification is, is 100% God, 0% us. It's given to us as a gift from God. But sanctification is actually a process that requires grace-driven effort on our end, as well as the Holy Spirit working that change out within our lives. And you say, well, Chris, which is it, man? Is it, is it me producing this life change in, in my own life, or is it the Holy Spirit of God who indwells me 
creating this life change? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is it's both. I've used this illustration before. It's kind of like when I was helping my kids learn how to ride a bike, right? And so I would, I would kind of jog in my little cul-de-sac beside my kids on that bike, and they would pump their little legs, and, and they would be steering their bike, and then I would be running behind them, and I would be steadying their, the back of their seat, and so when they kind of veer off to the right, I would pull them back so they wouldn't crash over here. Well, who, who was making that happen? Was it my kid or was it me? The answer is yes. It was, it was both of us together that were making that whole process happen. It's the same way in sanctification. I'll show you what I mean more by that in just a minute. But I want you to think back for a moment. Think back to those first disciples that we just read about in Matthew chapter 4. When they chose to follow Jesus, everything in their life changed, right? I mean, they, they left their careers. They, they left their positions. They, they actually left their homes and their friends and their family. And if you notice, Jesus doesn't even tell them where they're going. He doesn't even tell them how long they're going to be gone. He just says, follow me. All they knew is who they would be with, and that's all they needed. Their lives from the very beginning, from that moment in time that they dropped those fishing nets on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and began to follow Jesus, was nothing but a series of changes in their life. So from that, I want to give you our first truth this morning. Truth number one is this. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to life transformation. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to life transformation. Friends, that's why this idea that has somehow permeated the American church, that, that following Jesus is just praying some sort of magical prayer so that you can get back to living your life the way that you've always lived it and change absolutely nothing, that idea is simply not true. That idea you will find nowhere in Scripture. It is unbiblical. Following Jesus changes everything. It's always been that way. It's that way now, and it will always be that way until Jesus comes back again. I heard another pastor illustrate it this way. Imagine if, uh, imagine if I were late one Sunday morning, and imagine if Mike and the band were, were up here, and they're just leading worship, and as he finishes up the set, he kind of looks around, and I'm nowhere to be found, and so he starts just kind of making up some songs as he goes. He starts adding some songs. He's kind of like praying in his head, like, God, help, help Chris get here, and I still don't show up five, ten minutes in. He's run through all the songs that he knows, he starts cussing me out in his head a little bit. He's like, man, where, where is Chris? And all of a sudden, he's like, man, I just gotta, I gotta introduce him. So the band comes off, and he says, hey, welcome Chris to the stage, and crickets. <laughs> like, nothing happens. You guys are just staring at the blank screen at home on YouTube or Facebook or whatever, and you're like, man, should we turn this thing off? What, what happened to Chris? Did he catch the coronavirus? What happened? And all of a sudden, I come sprinting on stage, and I'm out of breath, and I get up here, and I'm like, man, sorry, guys, you... Man, you are not going to believe. I was on the way to church this morning, and I ran out of gas on the interstate, and I got out of my car, and I tripped on a rock and fell out into the interstate, and an 18-wheeler hit me going 80 miles an hour. And, um, and man, it stung a little bit. And I kind of got up, and I brushed off and hopped back in my car, and I, I drove here as, as fast as I could, and so, sorry, sorry I'm a few minutes late. Now, now, you would know if, if I said that, that, that I'm, either, I'm either lying about it or that I'm deceived about what actually happened to me because you know 
that someone who gets hit by an 18-wheeler going 80 miles an hour on the interstate changes the way someone looks, right? So when you follow Jesus, when you encounter him, it changes the way that you look. And if it does, listen, friend, if it doesn't change the way you look, you're either lying to yourself about it or you have been deceived, beloved. Jesus is not an add-on to your life. I think we've talked about this before. Uh, many of you probably, if you're like me, we're under, almost feels like house arrest or something. And, um, and so I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of my shopping on Amazon uh, uh, nowadays. And I'm sure probably many of you are as well. And if you've noticed, when you, when you buy something or you click to buy something on Amazon, it gives you this option on the bottom of the screen to, to buy other things. So it'll typically say something like, uh, buyers who bought this particular thing typically buy these other things. And it's called an add-on purchase, right? And so you can add different things to your original pur- purchase, just a way for them to make more money, right? Well, a lot of people are under the kind of that same impression that following Jesus is just like adding something else to their lives. So, so for them, following Jesus just becomes one of a thousand other things that are important in their lives, But the reality is truly following Jesus means making him the epicenter of our lives. For the follower of Jesus, for the true believer, the Christian, he is our life. Everything else in our life begins to circle around and revolve around him and his mission for us. And that brings us into truth number two this morning. Number two, following Jesus means making him the epicenter of your life. And friend, when you do that, things will begin to supernaturally change in your life. They just will. Your, your, your focus in life will begin to change. Your, your priorities in life will begin to change. Everything in your life at that point, from that moment in time forward, begins to shift and change in your life. Let me, let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible at home this morning, go ahead and grab it and head to Colossians, the book of Colossians, just a small little letter in your New Testament. We're going to camp out in Colossians chapter 3 for the rest of our time together this morning. And in the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, he's actually writing to a, a group of believers who are struggling with some elements of spiritual immaturity, right? So if you can relate to that in any way as I can, this book is really, really applicable to us at this point in our life. So he's writing to these believers They know Jesus, they love Jesus, they've given their lives to him, and yet they are still struggling with some elements of spiritual immaturity. And Paul is writing them, calling them to spiritual maturity or change in their spiritual walk. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to work through uh, the first 17 verses, but we're going to move quickly here, okay? Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So Paul basically says, hey hey guys, look, you you are dead. Like, like the old you, the you before Jesus, that person is dead. You've now been raised. You have a new life in Christ. Your life is now hidden with him. And so 
Paul starts off this chapter by reminding these believers of their salvation, of their sanctification. He goes, hey guys, listen, because your life is hidden in Christ, Christians, seek the things that are above. Don't, don't seek the things that are on this earth. In other words, stop focusing on the wrong things in life. See, sanctification starts with a, a change of the heart that leads to a change of the mind. And Paul is telling them, hey, Christian, your identity is in Christ now. So change the patterns of your thoughts. This is, this is why Paul says in other places like the book of Romans, he says things like, do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to the things of this world, but... Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So truth number three this morning. Number three is this. Sanctification is really the art of aligning your thought patterns with the mission of Jesus. Sanctification is really the art. It's, it's, it's learning the, the discipline of aligning our thoughts, our, our thought processes with the mission of Jesus. Now, look at number five. Paul continues on. He uses some really strong language here talking about the change that should be present in our lives. He says this, put to death, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you. And then he begins to give us a list of these types of sins that te just tend to like crowd out our hearts and grip our hearts. And so he starts, he says, put to death, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. And by the way, idolatry can be anything in our lives that we take from a secondary position and place it in the primary position of our lives where only God should exist in our lives. So it could even be good things. It could be a good relationship. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your family. It could be your job. It could be your career. Paul is saying, watch out. Make sure that your mind and your heart is not consumed by these things because that's actually idolatry. Verse six, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. Saying, this is, this is what used to define your life, Christian. You used to be all of these things. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And then verse eight, he has these incredible words. He says, but now. So he's saying, now, now there's a change. This is the way your life used to be. But now, since you're saved, since you've been justified by Jesus, things are different. But now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Here he is, he's talking about this, this change, this transformation that should exist in the life of every Christian. And you have put on the, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved. This, he's giving us our new identity in Christ. He, he read that whole list of sins and he says, that, that is who you used to be. That is not who you are anymore. This is your new identity. You are chosen by God. You are holy. You are beloved. So be compassionate. Have compassionate hearts. Have kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against the other, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. 
and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, this is a beautiful life that the Apostle Paul is describing here. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ, this is what we're doing right now together, even through the internet. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, we could take a month and literally just unpack that part of Colossians chapter three. That's how rich this text is. But for the sake of time, Paul, Paul is saying to these believers, look, you, you have been saved. You've, listen, friend, you, you've already been justified. You love Jesus, you're following Jesus, your life is hidden in him, it is safe in him, but God has so much more for you. He has more for you. He wants more for you relationally, and he wants more for you emotionally, and more for you sexually, and more for you physically, and more for you in your walk with him, and all of that more is found in the sometimes tedious oftentimes painstakingly slow process of sanctification. And what that means practically, as Paul lays out, is learning is for us. It's learning how to kill the seed of sin that dwells deep in our hearts. Listen, friend, sanctification is war. Sanctification is war, and that leads us right into our next point, number four. Sanctification is learning. It's learning how to wage war against your sin. And it's me learning how to wage war against my sin. Not, not, the, not the sin of your spouse. Not, not, not the sins of the society or the culture outside of these walls. It's learning how to wage war against our own sin. See, we typically are really, really good at waging war against other people's sin. We typically are really, really poor at engaging in war against our own sin. I was, uh, I probably shouldn't admit this to you, but I'm gonna anyway. I was, um, I was bored a few nights ago, and um, so I was just kind of scrolling through stuff on TV, trying to find something. I came, across, I came across this crazy show about these insane people that own big cats, all right, like tigers and, and lions and stuff like that. And so the way, the way these crazy, insane people make money is they basically breed tigers, and so they'll have all these cute little baby tiger cubs, and then people will come in and pay absolutely top dollar to, to hold and pet and snap pictures with these little baby tigers. The only problem with cute little baby tigers is that they grow up to be big tigers that want to rip your head off. There's, <laughs> there's actually this, this one scene in the show where, where this worker at this zoo gets, gets an arm ripped off. I mean, they don't show, you know, anything graphic, but literally a tiger rips this person's arm off. And the next scene, she's, she's sitting there doing an interview, like nothing happened. She's like, yeah, I came back to work, and she's sitting there, one arm's there, and one arm's gone, acting like nothing happened. I'm thinking, what in the world? How, how are they acting like this is completely normal? There's another scene where this dude is in a, a, a tiger cage, 
And and a tiger, a full-grown tiger, grabs his foot and begins dragging him around the cage. He's he's like beating it with a cane. He eventually pulls a gun out and starts shooting it to make it run off. And then it's like stalking him out of the cage. It was absolutely nuts. But that is, listen, that is exactly what so many Christians do with their own sin. Right? We take our little sin and... Oh, it's, look, at, look at my little sin. It's so cute. It's, it's, not that, it's not even that big of a deal. It's not, it's not hurting anybody. Look at those cute little claws and those cute little teeth. And we, we toy around with our sin. The problem is, like those little baby tigers, your sin grows up. And your sin, just like my sin, will rip your head off and watch you bleed out and eat you as a snack. Listen, friend, we, we do not need to tame our sin. We don't need to limit our sin. We don't need to just put boundaries around our sin. We need to seek to put it to death, as the Apostle Paul said to the Colossian Christians. We need to seek to crush it. I love this quote by the, the Puritan John Owen. He famously wrote, and this will be on the screens for you, says, do you, do you mortify? That, that word mortify is just kind of an old-timey word that means put to death. So John Owen writes, do you mortify? Do you put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Believer, sanctification is both changing the way that we think and also changing the way that we interact with our own sin. We are not to dance with it. We are not to toy with it. We are not to coddle it. We are to crush it, kill it, slay it. Here's what I I see oftentimes as as a pastor. And if I'm being transparent this morning, here's here's what I see in my own life uh, far too often uh, than I care to admit. What I see oftentimes is that people are really, really good at finding scapegoats for their own sin. And oftentimes, this comes really naturally to us. I mean, we don't even, I think half the time, we don't even realize that we're doing it. So really, 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 really quickly, I just wanna give you three barriers to sanctification, three barriers to sanctification that I think we all need to be killing in our own lives if we wanna grow and change into the men and women that God has designed for us to be. So the first barrier to sanctification, number one this morning, is that we tend to, or you tend to, to personalize it, blame others for your sin. And again, this, this comes so naturally to us that oftentimes we're completely blind to it. And so I'll oftentimes hear people say things like, yeah, man, I, I had an affair, but it, it was because he didn't appreciate me enough. Or, or yeah, I, I had an affair, but it's because she, my wife wasn't meeting my, my needs. Or yeah, I'm killing myself physically with, with food or, or drink, man. I'm a glutton, I'm a drunkard, but it's because I was, I was emotionally abused as a kid, man. And so I, I have to turn to food now or I have to turn to alcohol now to deal with all the pain that my parents caused me as a kid. Or yeah, I, I gossip about her, man, but that's because she did me wrong. She stabbed me in the back and I need to warn people not to trust her. Man, we, we take our sin all of the time and we begin to shift responsibility to someone else instead of owning it and killing it. And when we do that, friend, when we do that, we ensure that we will not grow spiritually. When we do that, we stunt the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we begin to blame other people for sins that entangle our own heart. 
So that's barrier number one to sanctification. If you wanna not grow in your faith, blame other people for your sin. Here's the second thing you can do if you don't wanna grow in your faith. Cover your sin up. Now this is, if I'm being honest, this is probably the one that, that I think bothers me the most. Because as Christians, we, we have this weird tendency to act like everything is good in our lives when it's anything but, don't we? I mean, aren't we all guilty of that at times? Right? We, we see each other at church, like back in the old days when we could still gather in person and go to church. And we, we ask each other, man, how, how are things going in your life? And the answer is always the same. Great, man. Things are going great. Couldn't be better. With the, how, how are things at home with, with, your, with your wife, with your kids? Man, we are just... I'm telling you, man, we are in love. Things just keep getting better and better. And meanwhile, you know, we screamed at our kids on the way to church, cussed out your wife in the car on the way here, and now your wife is Google searching how to make you disappear and still get your life insurance. But man, things have never been better at home. It's awesome, man. We're just living the dream. And social media has just heightened this in our life, hasn't it? You just, we scroll through Instagram or we scroll through Facebook and we really only see each other's highlight reels. Because <laughs> the reality is people aren't on social media posting pictures of themselves with like the very worst angles. Like so they, they, they look like Jabba the Hutt or something like that. No, every, if you notice, everybody takes selfies from above. So you, you can never see the double chin that's beginning to form for, for many of us, right? They post pictures of their date night downtown at the, the really nice restaurant. They never post what they ate last night, those nights where they ate Cheerios and ramen noodles and they screamed at each other all night long, right? We just get each other's highlight reels. And so when we live in this fake world where everybody covers up their messiness, we begin to think something is wrong with our lives. And we begin to think some, maybe something's wrong with my marriage. Why don't I have a marriage like that? Or maybe we begin to think, well, maybe something's wrong with my family or my work or my life. And so we begin to cover up the reality of our messy lives, not realizing that everybody else out there is living in their own mess. And so we cover up our sin. We pretend like things are great even when we're actually drowning in the background. And that is a surefire way to kill any potential spiritual growth in your life. So that's barrier number two to sanctification in your life. Barrier number three, the last one is this. We tend to justify our own sin, don't we? I mean, we, we, are, we are absolute pros at this one. I hear it all the time. Yeah, yeah, man, I'm, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. But hey, listen, at least I'm not like most of my friends. They're sleeping with a ton of people. I'm like, I'm doing way better than them. That's what I like. I hear stuff like that. And I want to say, man, do you realize that's like saying, yeah, I got a little bit of cancer, but I don't have near as much cancer as that dude over there. So I'm not going to worry about this cancer until I get as much as him. That would be asinine. That would be insane. Or you hear other people say things like, well, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm dabbling in a little bit of sin over here. But it, listen, it's nothing like I used to be, man. If you knew all that I had given up, if you knew all that I had come out of, you wouldn't even ask me to give up this little thing over here. Listen, I'm not asking you to do anything, friend. Jesus is. And he's asking you to do it, not because he's a killjoy, but because he knows that that sin will eventually kill your joy. And so we justify and we rationalize our way right into spiritual bankruptcy and we wake up one day completely disconnected from God, spiritually dry, and we wonder what happened. 
No, friend, we, we cannot justify our sin. God calls us to drag it out into the street and slay it. Do you want to know what the, the secret is to getting all of this junk out in your life? This is, this is kind of the secret. It's really simple. Here it is. Confess it. Take it out of the darkness. Drag it into the light. Stop running. Stop, stop hiding. Stop blaming other people. Stop covering up. Stop, stop justifying. Dra- drag that sin. Drag that junk by the throat out of the darkness into the light and kill it. And invite others into your life to help you kill it. Let's, let's kill it together. Right? We've all got sin. We've all got junk in our lives that we're battling. So let's stop playing games with each other. Let's stop pretending and help each other become the men and the women that God has designed us to become in this world. There's this incredible story in John chapter eight, uh, and then we're almost done, where, where Jesus, he's, he's teaching in the temple, uh, this large crowd gathers, and all of a sudden these religious leaders drag this poor woman right into the middle of the crowd, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says that we should execute her. We should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus just quietly stoops down and he begins to write something in the dirt. And we don't know what he was writing. Some people speculate that he was writing all of their sins or who knows what he was writing. But he just quietly stoops down, calmly begins to write something in the dirt. And as these Pharisees begin to just hammer Jesus with questions, Jesus, this is what the law says. This is what we ought to do. We got to stone her. She deserves death. He simply looks up at them and says, the one without sin cast the first stone. You got to imagine a silence just fell over the whole crowd. And one by one, as these guys started dropping the rocks and walking away until John tells us it was only Jesus and that woman left. Now imagine, put yourself in her shoes. Imagine the shame that she was feeling, the humiliation, likely no clothes on, completely exposed. I imagine tears running down her face, just a wet, snotty mess. And Jesus looks at her and he says, hey, hey, look up at me. Has no one condemned you? She looks up at Jesus and she says, no one, Lord. And he looks at her and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now I want you to notice something really important. I want you to notice the order in which Jesus spoke to her. First, he shows her compassion and love and mercy. And then, only then, after he shows her love and acceptance and mercy, does he give her the command to go and sin no more. Sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, we get that order reversed, don't we? Now we, we think we gotta clean up our lives and get all the sin and our lives out so that God will love us, but the opposite is true. God actually loves us in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our filth, and it's his love, his acceptance, his mercy that actually begins to change us. And that leads us to our last truth, number five this morning. Love leads to transformation. Love leads to transformation. Listen, church family, sanctification, this process of life change for the Christian is God saying to us, listen, son, listen, daughter, I have more for you than just this. 
I want, you, I want your marriage to be better. I've got better relationships for you. I've got healthier life habits for you. I've got more joy. I've got more peace. I've got more abundance for you. And it's because God loves us that he will hold the mirror of conviction in front of us and show us all of these areas in our hearts that we have not yet fully surrendered to Jesus. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a real big difference between guilt and conviction. Did you know that? For the believer, guilt is the voice of the enemy telling us that we will never be enough. Guilt crushes, it condemns. But conviction, on the other hand, is the Holy Spirit living inside of us and dwelling us, lovingly reminding us of our new identity in Christ, pushing us to begin living our new identity. Hey, Christian, you need to understand this morning, sin, sin doesn't own you anymore. Jesus has given you the ability and the power by the indwelling of his spirit to change, to transform into the version of yourself that he designed for you to become. But until you know who you are, you will never know what to do. Believer, you are a redeemed son. You are a beloved daughter. Let's learn to kill the sin in our lives. Let's learn to become more and more like Jesus for our good for his glory and his fame. As we close this morning, I just, I wanna say to, to any non-Christian out there who may be tuned in right now, maybe anybody that hasn't yet followed Jesus, super happy that you're with us this morning. But I, I want you to know that sanctification is step number two. This beautiful process of God taking us and making us into something brand new. That's not step number one, that's actually step number two. This incredible process of life change is actually apart, is, is impossible for you apart from Jesus. It's impossible for, for me or anybody else apart from Jesus. Now, sure, you can, you can modify your outward behavior for a week or maybe a month, but we're, we're talking about inner life change here that starts from the heart and works its way outward in your life, and only the Holy Spirit of God can produce that in your life. And so if you have not given your life to Jesus, I want you to know, like, that's step number one for you. Like, you, you've got to do step number one before you can get to step number two. You've got to walk before you can run. And so if that's you, I would just encourage you as we pray in just a moment to simply pray to God, to ask him to forgive you of your sin and to give your life fully to Jesus. Now, for the Christians who are tuned in to our service this morning, I just got one question for you, one, one simple question, and I want to just ask you to really think about it and really kind of examine your heart and your mind. Here's the question. What, what areas in your life right now do you need to open up and let the Holy Spirit begin to work in? What do you need to stop covering up in your life? What sin do you need to stop running from or hiding from or blaming other people for? Friend, listen, drag that stuff into the light. Confess it to God. Confess it to a trusted friend and unleash that beautiful and that powerful process of life change, sanctification in your life. Listen, friend, God has more for you. There's more for you out there. Let's get all that he has for us. I don't know about you, but man, I, I don't want like 50% of what God has for me in this life. I don't, I don't want 80%, I don't want 90%, I want all of it. I want 100% of the abundant life that Jesus has promised me right now in this life. And I know you want the same. He is 
a good God. Let's pray. Father, you, you are good. You are a good Father. And you love us enough to hold that mirror of conviction right in front of our hearts and our minds, God, so that we can begin to crucify that which is killing us in our hearts and our lives, God. Would you help us to begin to love what you love? Would you help us to begin to hate what you hate, God? For the person here, Father, who's tuned in, who's not able to experience this life change that we're talking about yet because they, they don't know, they're not in relationship with the author of life change. For, for those people, God, I just pray right where they are, maybe on their couch or in their bedroom or sitting on the front porch or wherever they are, God, they don't know you, Father. Would you help them right now make that commitment in their hearts and their minds just to give their lives to Jesus, confess their sins to you and find life, freedom, and joy in a brand new life in you, God. And we ask all of these things in the name that we cling to during these times, the name that sets us free, the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Church, let's sing.